is a joy to be here with you this morning. Though it be a rainy day, it is a good day because we can come here and worship together. So if you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Proverbs chapter 16. We'll be looking at the first nine verses of chapter 16 this morning. Before we get to that, though, I always like to give a little bit of a something to get us on the right track before we get to the text, so we're thinking along the right lines. So have you ever seen the doors of providence open wide in a way that you did not expect? I've had those experiences, but I've also had the experiences where you think you've got a great plan figured out and the door slams shut right in your face. And he's, why? That was a great plan. At least I thought it was. Along those lines, believe it or not, I did not always think I was going to be a pastor. I've not always wanted to be a pastor or planned on it. Of course, I had moments, brief moments growing up where I thought I might go into ministry but due to uh, underestimating the ability for God to gift with gifts, to give me the gifts to preach, I decided that probably wasn't it for me. So I thought, okay, I'll probably go into the military, probably the Marines. Military life sounds cool to me. Get some training, learn, all that kind of stuff, travel. But between my horrific allergies, the addition of severe food allergies, migraines, things like that, by teenage years I realized that that was not going to be a good plan for me. Then I decided that I wanted to work for political campaigns. So I went to Chapel Hill after community college, and I double majored political science and history. My plan was to go work for some sort of campaign program. I don't even know what I was thinking, but something along those lines. But then I met my wife and learned a little bit more, and somewhere along the way while I was at Chapel Hill, I was struck with two things. First, I came to realize that I hated politics. (laughs) Exactly. And second, the feeling that I was being called to ministry was becoming more and more clear and that my original plans were not where God was really leading me. So I applied to seminary and I applied to one seminary, only one. And I had a prayer. I said, Lord, if you want me in ministry, let me into seminary. Let that be the sign. And if not, please let me be rejected. That's what my prayer was. So I applied and I was accepted. And then I watched as God opened door after door after door to continue through seminary, exams, marriage, having our first child, and providing a place to live on a seminary budget. Um, All the things my family needed to live, God provided along the way. So we saw those doors open again and again. And all of that really culminated with graduating and getting a job right out of seminary at a church, the church where I'm at now. Not only that, finding us a house to live in because the housing market went crazy and we weren't sure that was going to happen at first. But again, God opened the doors. So when I reflect on God's providence over me and the doors that he has opened in my life and how he has led me to where I am, it's really nothing short of amazing to me. And I wish that I could take some credit for any of that, but it's clear to me that God has simply blessed me far beyond what I deserve and not that I was just a good planner. So I'm sure you all have similar stories of how God has opened doors for you, how he has closed doors for you, how he has guided you and your families to where you are now. What we're going to look at in this passage today is that those who seek to honor the Lord in their life and seek to glorify him above seeking their own plans will never fail to have a hand guiding them at every turn. Because changes in planning, they can be scary. They can be overwhelming, stressful, and we can be full of doubt during those times. But we have to walk through those times the same way we walk through any other part of our life. We have to walk by faith, knowing that that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, cares about us, and is guiding us at every turn. And so the proposition, the thesis, if you will, for this sermon is pretty simple. 
Because God is sovereign, we must walk by faith. So that's our background. Let's read Proverbs 16, the first nine verses. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And when a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're going to look at three points this morning. And the first, we're going to outline the providence of God. Then we're going to talk about, within that providence, God's plan for the wicked. And finally, in the third point, we'll talk about God's plan for the righteous. So let's begin with point one. Because God is sovereign, we must know his providence. So God's providence and sovereignty are topics which we typically struggle to understand. Many unbiblical views of God's sovereignty have been developed in the church throughout time. And most of the errors arise out of the difficulty of reconciling our free will and God's absolute sovereignty. So on the one side of the spectrum, you have extremely mechanistic views of God's providence. So in these systems, God essentially makes everybody do whatever they're going to do, and we really don't have any free will at all. This is kind of the robot idea. So if you think about that option and you think about it long, then you're going to realize there are some major issues with that kind of thinking. One of the most serious issues is how do you reconcile a good and holy God with sin if he controls every single thing we do and makes us do everything we do? Clearly, that's a problem. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have something like open theism. And that says because we have free will, because God has free will, and we can't interfere with each other's free will, then God can't really be sovereign because he can't know the future because he doesn't know what we're going to decide. Well, if you're like me and you think that's a good option, or if you're like me and you think about that option, then you realize that's a pretty scary one to have a God who's not really sovereign. Well, most Christians, thankfully, fall somewhere between the radical ends of that spectrum. And most Christians readily admit that God is in control of everything. And even if they don't admit that, most Christians pray like God is in control of everything. But this passage deals with this topic of God's providence in a balanced and a correct way that shows both God's absolute control over everything, but also man's freedom and responsibility to choose under God's sovereignty. So verse 1 teaches this very concept. Man has the ability to make plans. We have the ability to think and to reason. But God alone is going to decide whether our plans come to fruition. So both are active, both man and God, but the Lord is over it all and has the final word in everything. A friend and mentor of mine always explains God's sovereignty and human choice with an analogy. He says God's sovereignty is like an umbrella. All mankind is free to choose according to his nature underneath that umbrella of God's sovereignty. So there's nothing under that umbrella that a man can do that would allow him to leave the cover of that umbrella. So no matter what his choice is, he will stay underneath it. 
He chooses within that space, but God is sovereign over those choices. When Adam was in the garden, he had the option to obey or disobey. But once he chose to disobey, he plunged mankind into what? Sin and misery. So in that state of death since the fall, man is only able to choose sinful options. So only once we are regenerated are we able to choose good options. But the man apart from Christ will only choose evil. So this is what verse 2 refers to when it says that the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. That really reminds me of the theme verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when we are the judges, we have a problem because we have no objective scale for right and wrong, whether believer or unbeliever. But God is the perfect standard for good. The Lord is the only possible standard by which to measure morality. He is the eternal God. Now, the Trinity is totally sufficient within itself. God neither needs nor desires anything more because he is the ultimate good and the highest possible good. And yet he chose to create other beings, not because he needed them, but to display his greatness. So first he made the angels, and then he created the physical world and placed mankind as the pinnacle of creation being made in his own image. So this eternally existing God, who created out of his own good pleasure, also indisputably rules over every inch and atom of creation. His rule is so total and so complete that not one event in history, think of all the events in history, just in one history book that doesn't cover much, everything is under his plan. Nothing can fall outside of his plan. Even Satan, the fall, and sin are accounted for under the sovereignty of God. Now, he could not cause them because he is not an evil God. He is holy and he is good. Yet he is able to use sin and to direct it in a way that advances his glory and his goodness. That's a high mystery, something that's very difficult for our brains to comprehend. I think that's why Solomon moves on in verse 3 and tells us to commit all our works to the Lord. Now, this isn't just a suggestion from Solomon. It's not just some idea he came up with. It is an imperative. It is a command. We are commanded to commit our plans and our lives to God. And when we do that, when we commit our lives to God, we must remember who it is we are giving them over to. This God is in control over all things, and he brings our desires and plans. So as we bring our desires and plans to him, he is sovereign over those as well. So we can make plans, we can work towards them, but it is God who's going to establish those plans. Notice the passive tense being used in verse 3. We're not commanded to commit our ways to God so that he will allow us to establish our own plans, but so that he will establish them. And do you hear the difference between those two options? The one who weighs our hearts is the one who determines whether our plans will be established. So for some people, that's a horrifying thought. But to others, it is a great encouragement and a gift. So we'll we'll look at these two groups of people over the next two points, those who tremble at this truth and those who rejoice in it. So point two, because God is sovereign, we must know his plan for the wicked. He's really looking at verses four and five in the text. So verse four presents us with a difficult truth. God is all-knowing. Say, why is that difficult? Well, if he's all-knowing, he knew that Satan would rebel 
and that Adam and Eve would disobey. God knows every evil thing that will occur and every evil thing that did occur before it happened in history, small and great. And yet he created angels and men anyway. But he did not make them to serve their own ends, but to serve his glory. Even the most wicked being in the world was made by God. Now, God did not make them evil, but the Lord did make them. So God is a holy God who hates all sin. Evil is not a part of him. It can never be a part of him. He's a consuming fire because his holiness finds and destroys sin because it is an affront to his perfect purity and goodness. So the wicked, not only do they sin against God, but they do so as created and finite beings who have sinned against an infinite, almighty, and perfect being. Because of this, God will judge every evil being to ever exist. They will be punished so that the justice, purity, and goodness of God may be upheld at every turn. Verse 5 continues that idea, tells us that this sin, or this sinner even, is an abomination before God. The Lord has a good and holy hatred of all evil. And because of this, none who ever sin against him or against anybody will ever go unpunished in the end. So in God's righteous judgment, we see his holy wrath and his perfect justice demonstrated. And in seeing that, we see more of his character than we would have if there had never been evil. So it's really a frightening thing to think about, and it's a difficult thing to think about. Most people who struggle with the doctrine of election or just Calvinism in general They balk because of this truth. The thought of enduring the wrath of God or knowing that he created people whom he knew would sin and have to be punished is not an easy topic to think about. But if God is not sovereign over even the sinner and evil, then he is no sovereign God at all. Now, the prophet Jeremiah was taught about the sovereignty of God. In chapter 18 of Jeremiah, God sent the prophet to a potter who was working with clay. And the potter was there on his wheel. Whenever he made an error, he would squash the pot and he would start over. And in that chapter, God declares that Israel is the same malleable clay in his hands to remake, to reshape, to remold however he sees fit as the great potter. Then you move forward into chapter 19 and Jeremiah is commanded by God to go pot by a pottery flask. Go before the elders of Israel with it in his hands and to break it before their eyes. What's the point of that? What was the sign? And the sign was that God was going to bring disaster on Israel for their sin and for their rebellion and hand them over to the Babylonians to be punished. So what's the implication of that? God has the right to do what he wants with his creation. The one who creates also has the right to destroy and punish. But maybe you think, well, maybe that's just the Old Testament God. It's just that mean old guy. Now we have the New Testament new guy, right? He's nicer. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 9. We'll just read verses 17 through 23. So Romans 9, beginning in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? 
Well, what is molded says to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So from that passage, we can see that God not only has the right to have mercy on whomever he will have mercy, but that he is even able to use evil men and evil nations and their leaders to display his power and fulfill his purposes. God uses even the most wicked to accomplish his purposes, be it Pharaoh, Babylon, or Rome. God is indeed sovereign over all things, both good and evil, physical and spiritual, past and present, And nothing works against his purposes. And so even the wicked in history will further display the goodness and the justice of God. The wicked, however, they don't think about that. They try to deny the existence of God. And even if they do admit that he's real, they're fighting against God. They're rebelling against God. Their plans are always right in their eyes because they want to be God. Therefore, they rebel. But the problem is their hearts are fickle judges without any standard or ruler to measure the goodness of anything. They plan their steps and arrogantly boast about whatever evil path seems to serve their unbridled lusts the most. What they fail to understand is that it is God who will either establish or crush every plan that they make. So some may try to warn them of their peril, but they are blinded by their sin and choose instead to ignore their creator who sovereignly ordains everything. In other words, they do not commit their plans to the Lord. Instead, they boast with their lips, but those boasts will not come to pass. God will righteously judge and condemn them for their prideful boasts, and they will be forever damned and under his holy fire. The reason for that is simple. God weighs the spirit, and the wicked man will not escape. But despite his blind wickedness, the evil man's sin will work for the glory of God in the end. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes. He made all according to his will and for his praise. He designed to serve his own purposes by all his creatures, and he will not fail of his designs. All are his servants. The wicked he is not glorified by, but he will be glorified upon. But the usefulness of the wicked man in God's hands is not to show, is not only to show his glory upon, but also to edify and display the riches of his grace to his people. And that's what we now turn to in the third point. Because God is sovereign, we must know his plans for the righteous. We've talked about his providence. We've talked about his plan for the wicked. Now his plan for the righteous. So everything that we said negatively of the plan for the wicked may be said positively of the plan for the righteous. The wicked considers all his desires good in his own eyes, while the righteous consider their ways according to the standard of God's perfect law. The wicked seek their own way and boast about it, but the righteous humbly seek to have their ways conform to God's will. God will weigh the wicked and declare them wanting, but he will weigh the righteous and declare them holy and blessed. The wicked are made for the day of evil, the righteous for the day of glory. Evil men are an abomination, but the righteous are a delight to the Lord. The corrupt will be punished, 
but the holy ones will be rewarded and blessed. But what's the main difference between the wicked and the righteous? Obviously, they behave differently, but is that all there is to it? Well, if you know your scriptures, you know the gospel, then you know, of course not. There's only one reason the righteous have their standing. Scripture tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. The best of our works are described as what? Filthy rags before God. We're all born as wicked men. We're all deserving of death. So it's only as we are reborn and remade into the image of Christ that we again or that we gain that righteous standing. So only through the blood and perfect righteousness of Christ do we have any claim on the category of the righteous. Unless anyone here think that you earn your standing before God, consider the words of Thomas Watson from his book, All Things for Good. You have the root of bitterness in you and would would bear as hellish fruit as any if God did not either curb you by his power or change you by his grace. We were bought with a price by Christ and we are his. And as his people, we take on the righteous standing of Christ and our sin is cast away from us because it was paid for by Christ at the cross. The atonement, that fact of our salvation and our righteousness is the cornerstone on which we stand. And the only reason any of us can fall into this category of the righteous. If you look at verse six and the word for atoned, The Hebrew word there is an emphatic verb. It's to show the radical and the complete cleansing that takes place in our salvation. That our iniquity and sin is atoned for. So those whose sin has been forgiven are unable to grow in the fear of the Lord. And of course, fear of the Lord here isn't a crushing terror, but a humble, reverential obedience to God and to his will. The idea is very similar to what my favorite passage is from Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So grace hasn't just appeared in Christ. Grace hasn't just saved us. Grace continues to train us. It will continue to train us until the Lord takes us home. So the spirit of God, it works within us to increase our hatred of evil or Yes, increase our hatred of evil and to increase our love for God and his plans for us. So God not only saves us from our sin and following our own paths, but he's also teaching us how to love him and his ways. Our faith is completely and totally a transformative one, where God slowly roots out our old nature and grows us more and more into the image of Christ. So the life of the righteous is really a blessed life. Now, That does not mean that we always have riches and power in this world. In fact, oftentimes it's just the opposite. But to live in the pleasure of the Lord is the highest blessing possible in this life. Verse 7 tells us that the reconciling power that is at work within us even enables us to be peacemakers in the world. Here we are told that even our enemies can live at peace with us as a result of God's transforming work within us. So that's why it's better to have a little in this life with righteousness than to have great riches with injustice, as the verse says. We may live in poverty here, but we have a mansion prepared for us in glory. But even now, God is constantly tempering, disciplining, and preparing us 
for the day in which we will fully come into that rich inheritance. These are the privileges of being a child of God. And yet many of you may be looking around at the world around us and things seem to be falling apart. You ask, well, how can this be? How can a good God be sovereignly in control of everything? Seems like there's weekly mass shootings now. Our culture is rebelling more and more against a biblical model of family, gender, and morality. We suffer illness, sickness, rejection, our own ongoing sin struggles, and we endure the hate of the world on top of it for holding to the truth. So you can ask the question, how then are we living a blessed life? How is the plan of God for his people this? Let's look at two concepts. First, let's talk about sanctification. God uses all of these trials and temptations in order to train us in righteousness. I don't know about you, but if I am comfortable, I sit. And what our souls tend to do is we get comfortable, we begin to like the world around us, and yeah, we're just happy to sit here. And so God has to prod us along. So all the struggles in our lives serve to drive us to God in faith and to prayer. But they also begin to erode the false sense of security and contentment that we like to have in this life. Every struggle, every twinge of pain is a reminder of the brevity of this life. Thomas Brooks writes that afflictions are a crystal glass wherein the soul has the clearest sight of the ugly face of sin. So our struggles not only purify us, but also teach us about the true heinousness of sin. So God is able to use even the sins not only of us, but of others to purify us. And he's able to use them for his glory. Thomas Watson writes that the sins of others work for good as they are mirrors in which we may see our own hearts. Do we see a vicious, impious sinner? Behold, a picture of our hearts. Such would we be if God did leave us. So by showing us sin through the wickedness of others, God teaches us humility and he teaches us faithfulness. But we also need to remember that every trial is a temporary measure meant for our good. Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And while it is often difficult for us to understand how in this life, God uses even trials, even evil of others for our good. Even though many of those things which we wonder about now, we ask God why, we may not know why in this life. But we can know that all things work together for good. Every illness and struggle is for the good of his children because Christ knows what we need most. Again, Watson says, thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. We should not so much look at the evil of affliction as the good, not so much the dark side of the cloud as the light. The worst that God does to his children is whip them to heaven. Now, for me, that puts things into perspective a little bit. Know that the worst God will do is to take me home to be with Christ. When things get tough, that is a very comforting thought. All right, so that was sanctification. Next, let's look at how we determine our God's plan for our lives. So right away, I want to do away with the idea that so many believers have about how to seek out God's will for their lives. Especially for young people, the process is typically something ambiguous, bordering on mysticism, and somehow divining God's secret plan for your life. 
I think some expect a mystical experience wherein God sends an angel directly to them and hands them a binder with a five-year plan for their life. At least in those instances, you can typically say that the Christian sincerely wants to please God, but maybe they're just going about it the wrong way. Sadly, there are many more who never care enough to even ask the question, am I seeking God's will with this decision? But for those who want to please God and who want to seek his guidance, there is good news. The scripture gives us all the information we need in order to do God's will. And there are two senses which I'd like to talk about here. First, we are to do God's will by following his revealed word and the principles therein. So if we are seeking to faithfully follow the law of God, though imperfectly, we are walking in his will. There's no no moral conundrum, no ambiguity in this life which scripture does not speak to. So if the word of God is precious to us, if we are internalizing it and trying to walk according to the word in obedience, then we will be following the will of God for our lives. And in one sense, it's that simple. Now, the second aspect is a little more complicated, and that's the way we find God's calling for our lives, the way we figure that out. There are really two kind of parts to addressing that. So first, we've got to talk about where you are now. Wherever God has placed you at this moment is not a mistake. Wherever you are at this moment, you are called to serve. You're called to serve God to the best of your ability. So whether you love your job or you hate it, whether you want to be married or whether you want to have kids, whether you want to move, do this, do that, in a sense, it doesn't matter. God has called you here to this moment today, right now. So our struggle is to not be so discontented with where we are that we fail to serve God where he has currently placed us because he has a purpose for us wherever we are in whatever season we are in. So as God commanded the people of Israel while in exile at Babylon, seek the good of the city where you are. In other words, God told the people who are sitting in exile to go on with their lives where he had placed them, in a foreign land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. We cannot look forward at the expense of the present. We serve God here on this day. And how we are going to serve God tomorrow is of no concern to us yet, until tomorrow. So second, figuring out where God is leading you can be a difficult thing to determine. So when do you take that next step? When do you make the next move? When do you take the next job? Having the next child, go back to school, whatever the question may be. And this is where our lives call for wisdom and humility before God. We must bathe our planning in prayer and ask that our wills will be in line With God's will. God opens and closes doors, leading us exactly to where he wants us to be. So we can make bad decisions. We can make mistakes. But we can rest in the comfort that we can mess up what we think our plans are. But we can never mess up God's plans for us. No one can thwart those plans. So the real trick is to learn to submit your heart and your plans to God and ask him to establish your steps. Ask him to make your path clear by submitting yourself to him and submitting your heart to him. So we shouldn't worry. We shouldn't stress. We instead have to trust that God will work through us and show us the way in which we should go. Seek his kingdom first. What's the rest of the verse? All these things shall be added unto you. Let's conclude. We began with a proposition that because God is sovereign... We must walk by faith. 
We then walk through three points, all based on that one universal truth. Because God is sovereign, we must know his providence, his plan for the wicked, and his plan for the righteous. So the Lord is the great creator who sustains and rules over every inch of creation. This mighty God sovereignly reigns and orchestrates all things for his glory. So while mankind has the ability to make free decisions and to plan, it is God who will determine whether or not those plans are established. Because nothing, not one thing, can fall outside of the sovereignty of God. So even sin and the wicked in the world are under God's control. Every unrighteous human in history that has tried to rebel against God and foil his plans, well, their attempts failed. Not only did they fail to foil God's plans, but that was a part of God's plan to use it for good instead of for evil. Even their most evil sins, God is able to glorify himself upon and somehow turn into good. And in so doing, he upholds his righteousness and he shows us more of his character and his righteous judgment on the wicked. As we saw in the passage and in, Ro- in this passage and in Romans 8:28, God is able to use all things, both good and evil, for the good of those who love him. So for this reason, the life of a believer must not be one of uncertainty or fear or apprehension. We are united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, we, we have confidence that everything will work out for our good and that the Lord will guide us so long as we seek to align our wills with his. Before the battle of Jericho, Joshua met, with a, met a figure with a drawn sword And Joshua asked him a question. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Well, the figure looked at Joshua and answered, no. (laughs) The figure was the commander of the Lord's army, likely a pre-incarnate Christ. So his no really meant that Joshua had asked the wrong question. You should never ask whether God is on your side or the side of your enemies. The question is always, are you on God's side? Are you submitting your will to his and your plans to him? Because you don't want to follow a plan that's not God's plan. <laughs> that will not work out well for you. And that's where we come back to the verse of this section. The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. So are you planning your life according to God's ways or your own? The answer to that question will tell you whether you are seeking God's glory or your own. Seek your own way and you will be lost and wandering your whole life. You may just be punished with the wicked on the last day. But seek the righteousness in Jesus Christ and the Lord will establish your steps and guide you to fruitfulness now and forever after. Commit your works unto Yahweh and your plans will be established. Let's pray. Lord God, in this life there are many uncertainties. And we do ask for forgiveness because we seek our own ways far too often. We grow comfortable where we are. We want to seek answers from data or facts or talking with this person or that person. But so often we fail to simply submit our plans to you, to walk humbly by faith before you. So Lord, we ask for your mercy where we have failed, but also your grace that moving forward we can continue to bring our plans to you by faith, trusting in you to guide us where you would have us go. Because we know that you have the plans in store for us Lord, it is those plans that will make us fruitful and faithful. So, Lord, help us to, to rest in those truths. Help us to rest in your goodness to us. Because for those who love you, all things work together for our good. And, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. In the name of Christ, amen.